John chapter 7, verse 50 through, 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the word, for Jesus Christ, the revelation of God perfectly, for in him all the fullness of deity dwelt bodily. For he is God with you in the Holy Spirit, and he is our Savior. We pray that you would teach us of him, teach us his message and good news, that we might be encouraged in him, strengthened in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this text, what had just happened is that Jesus had been at the Feast of Booths, and he had been teaching there at the Feast of Booths. He had stood up in the middle of it teaching, and he had stood up on the last day teaching. If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Uh, speaking of the living waters of the Spirit that he would pour forth upon those who believed in him. And yet there were many divisions among the people, uh, disputes among them. Is this the Christ? Is this the prophet? And the leaders in particular uh, did not think that he was the Christ. They thought he was uh, someone who was evil, who was leading the people astray and were hostile against him and didn't even listen to the good counsel of Nicodemus who urged that they follow the law and give him a hearing. Now, this passage, beginning in verse 53 of chapter 7, going through verse 11, has been the object of a lot of debate of a different kind of simply whether it belongs in the Bible or not. Uh, the text that we have comes from manuscripts that were handwritten before the invention of printing, and they would be copied. And in those manuscripts, some of them have this passage and some of them don't. And that has given rise to some discussion over the years about where this passage came from. Uh, and this debate has been known throughout the history of the church. 
Like I said, some ancient manuscripts have it, others do not. Some that don't have it still leave a space for it. Like you could tell that they knew that some people would put it there, and there's this big gap, and then it carries on. Some that have it have markings in the margin to indicate that there was some variation in the textual record, just like we have in the ESV, where it has some brackets around it. When Chrysostom preached on John, he skipped over it. Uh, but when Jerome and Augustine, uh, they included it, and although they recognized that it wasn't as well accepted in the East. Augustine claimed that some had excluded it from fear that it would lead to immorality. That if people heard this story about Jesus and the adulterous woman, they might get the wrong idea and think that Jesus was promoting immorality, which we'll see is not the case, but um, he probably was right that some people would misuse the text because some people have misused this passage over the years. In fact, others have thought that perhaps one reason it dropped out is simply because it wasn't included in the regular readings in church, uh, even if it was in their text because of fear of how it might have been misused. In the Reformation, uh, Beza was somewhat skeptical of its authenticity, uh, but Calvin was inclined to receive and apply it. And this is what Calvin said in his commentary. It is plain enough that this passage was unknown anciently to the Greek churches, and some conjecture that it has been brought from some other place and inserted here. But as it has always been received by the Latin churches and is found in many old Greek manuscripts and contains nothing unworthy of an apostolic spirit, there is no reason why we should refuse to apply it to our advantage. It's not as if the church was surprised by a modern discovery, um, nor are there many debatable passages of this length. Um, The only other that would be similar in size, you know, more than a verse or two, would be the longer ending of Mark, uh, and this is the more debatable of those two. While this passage is unique, it's the only time John refers to scribes, for example, usually it just refers to the Jews, and the omission of the story in many early manuscripts is significant, I think Augustine's explanation for its omission is a good explanation uh, as far as why would there be a difference. Uh, It would make sense that some were a little overly careful about uh, reading this passage. On the other hand, it would be an odd story to add to the text, especially because it's difficult and easily misused. Uh, Why would someone add it? Uh, It's more likely, it seems, that people were embarrassed by it or found it difficult. Uh, So I'm going to preach from it. Um, And of course, simply because it's difficult, apart from any textual difficulties, we want to read it in light of the rest of Scripture, Uh, to make sure that we are on target as to understanding what it's teaching. One thing that does also kind of support its authenticity is that it fits a lot of themes of John's Gospels. Uh, If you look at the context of this Gospel. In John 3, Jesus said, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus says, Neither do I condemn you. Uh, We're going to have some some reflection on that theme. It shows up in chapter 12, 47 as well, this idea of, you know, there might be other things that condemn you, but I didn't come to condemn you. Uh, As it's explained in John, they're already condemned by their deeds, but he came to save. In chapter 5, he spoke of Moses and his writings, 
He said, do not come, do not think I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So there again, he's putting the emphasis on how they're already condemned. They're already convicted. Moses condemns them. They're not following his words. And if they did believe Moses, they would believe Jesus. In chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus testifies about the world that its works are evil. And here he convicts the world, the scribes and Pharisees, of their sin. Later on in chapter 7, he also speaks again of the law of Moses. He says, Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Uh, There is this hostility against him, which we'll see in this text, and this misuse or not practicing the law of God God given by Moses. Nicodemus brings it up in the end of chapter 7. Doesn't the law give a man a fair hearing? And yet they were trying to trap uh, Jesus, even using the law of Moses to try to do that. Later on in chapter 8, Jesus will talk more of judging, not judging, the law, and witnesses. So the themes of this passage fit very well with the themes of the gospel as a whole. Now, to understand this passage properly, it's important to understand that the scribes and the Pharisees were laying a trap for Jesus. Do you know what a trap is? Like a snare, right? Something to catch you up or trap you, I mean, to to snag you, to uh, trip you up. And that's what the Pharisees and scribes were trying to do. They were trying to get Jesus to say something that they could use to get him into trouble. They wanted to kill him, but they wanted to find kind of an excuse to do so. They wanted to get him in trouble with the authorities. Because who was able to kill in that time? It was the Roman authorities who were able to put someone to death. That's actually going to show up kind of important here in a minute. But they would need some charge to bring against him both in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish authorities, and perhaps also the Roman authorities. And so they did not ask their question in good faith. They were not sincerely seeking an answer about the understanding of the law and its political applications. Uh, This wasn't a a discussion among his disciples, you know, like teach us how to pray, you know, something like that, where it was in good faith. They really wanted to know how to pray. Uh, That's not what the scribes and Pharisees were doing. It was an attempt to get Jesus in trouble. And so Jesus does not give a straightforward answer because they didn't give him a straightforward question. Uh, He doesn't simply talk about the law and its political application. He aims deeper at conviction and at repentance. Now, what did they do? They brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. We read about that in Deuteronomy 22 just a minute ago, uh, where if... uh, A man lay with a woman who was the wife of another man, uh, that both him and and her were to be killed. And then applies it also to a man and a betrothed virgin would be the same. That's where actually brings up the stoning as the method of execution. But it makes a distinction between adultery and and rape, you know, where the woman wasn't consenting to it and uh, was a victim, and, and that would be different. She would not be put to death if that was the case. But uh, they... Uh, bring this woman before Jesus, that she she had been unfaithful to her husband with another man. Then they cite the law of Moses, which prescribed the death penalty for adultery. 
And then they asked Jesus, so what do you say? It's kind of pitting Jesus against the law, like expecting him to say something else. John explains for us, they said this to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Uh, This was why they tried to make Jesus the bad guy uh, by putting him in this situation. If Jesus told them to not stone the woman, then they could charge him with overthrowing the law of God. You know, see, this is definitely a false teacher. He's leading people away from the God of our fathers and from his word. But if he told them to stone the woman, then they could charge him with being a rebel against Rome, since at this time only the Roman magistrate could enforce the death penalty. The Jews will later tell Pilate, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Uh, This isn't simply something we know from historical context, but even in the Gospel of John itself, it's clear that Pilate, the Roman magistrate, was the only one who actually could execute people. And, by the way, the Romans at this time did not have a death penalty for adultery. Uh, So this was... uh, almost similar to today where adultery is not a capital crime. Uh, It was not being practiced at the time. And so they want to get Jesus in trouble. Either he's going to say something unpopular, perhaps treasonous, and uh, something that uh, would would perhaps discount him in a number of ways, or get him to pit himself against the law of Moses and to prove himself to be a false teacher. Uh, They want to get a charge against him. Well, something we should also notice, that in the law in Deuteronomy and Leviticus as well, it refers both to the man and the woman who commit adultery. But they only brought the woman to Jesus. Doesn't that sound a little fishy? Something's going on here. Probably, you know, they, if they caught her in the act of adultery, you would think that they would have caught the man too in the same act. Now, Jesus and John, in writing this gospel, seem to accept that the woman did commit adultery. You know, sin no more implies that she was sinning, perhaps. Uh, John himself, in his narrative, says that she was caught in adultery. But the legal process here seems to have been unfair, Uh, probably because they were more interested in trapping Jesus than about actual justice. All right, so how does Jesus respond? They say, well, what do you say, Jesus? You know, you're a teacher. There probably a lot of people would ask him questions. They ask this question, throw it out there. How did Jesus answer? At first, he didn't answer. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. What about, what, what does that mean? What was he writing? What do you think he was writing? That's interesting. You know, someone asked a question, all of a sudden just... He starts writing on the, the ground in the dirt with his finger. Uh, <coughs> um, first thing we can notice, perhaps the main point, is that Jesus essentially ignored the question. He didn't answer it. Bad question. It's a trick question. It's a trap. It's not worth answering. Do you really think I'm going to disagree with the law? Um, and related to that, in ignoring the question... Not only was it a bad question, but he was not the magistrate on an earthly level. He wasn't the Roman magistrate. His office was far higher. He was more than a a judge in Jerusalem. He was the king of kings. Uh, He didn't come to overthrow government. He didn't come to overthrow Pilate 
uh, or even Caesar. Um, he would over, you know, eventually overturn his enemies, but not the political order, not the civil government. Uh, that would be a minister of God to execute judgment on the evildoer. He did not bear the sword in vain. And so Jesus didn't usurp that. He came to call people, kings and commoners and everyone, uh, he came to call them to repentance, that they might serve him in their callings. This is similar to what Jesus did in Luke 12. In Luke 12, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. So he, he avoids being brought in simply as some judge uh, who had not been uh, publicly appointed to that office, but he goes deeper. He stays on mission, and he reveals the more important underlying issue, in that case of covetousness, uh, of greed for earthly possessions. In this case, he does something similar. Now, also, I think it might be significant that Jesus wrote with his finger. He wrote with his finger while being questioned about a law concerning adultery. God had written with his finger on the stone tablets, thou shalt not commit adultery. In the Old Testament says that was done with the finger of God, whatever that meant. It wasn't a literal physical finger at the time, but they were to think of it as if it was done by the finger of God himself, that he had carved these things and he did carve those things on the stone tablets, thou shalt not commit adultery. So, of course, the law of God remains. Jesus did not come to abolish it. We know that much from Matthew 5. He did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, uh, to uh, bring it to fulfillment, whether fulfilling its types and shadows by being the sacrifice for sin or by being one who would uh, cause his disciples to bear fruit from the heart, writing the law on their hearts, teaching them to observe it. He didn't fulfill... Uh, see, he came to fulfill it, not to abolish it. But as he's writing there on the ground, the scribes and the Pharisees continue to ask. What, so what do you say? What do you say? What do you say? Come on, Jesus, we want your answer. They continue to ask him. And so he stands up and he says, Let him who is without sin be... Sorry, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he returned to writing on the ground some more, and he let conscience do its work. He again turned away his attention from them and let those words hang upon them. Let him who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw the stone. <clears throat> now, as probably some question here. Did he refer who is whoever is without the sin of adultery or whoever is without the sin of malice and setting up this trap or the sin of seeking to kill him or sin in general? Uh, perhaps Jesus is condemning a flaw in their legal case that they were not properly observing the law. Uh, the uh, witness was to be the first one to cast the stone and being a malicious witness was forbidden. Uh, a, a false witness in particular. But I think Jesus is speaking as a prophet, as a preacher, and he goes beyond the legal de details of the case. He is rebuking their hypocrisy. He is rebuking their 
evil intent, trying to show themselves as all just and righteous while seeking to break the law by killing him. And he does so by calling them to examine their own conscience. Are they without sin? Are you without sin? If so, go ahead. But if not, don't. And this is very similar to the point that Paul brings up in Romans 2. After convicting the Gentiles for their sins, their idolatry, their worshiping the creature rather than the creator, he goes to the Jews as well. And he's like, Jews, you have the oracles of God. You know these things are wrong, but you still practice them. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Uh, later on in that chapter, which we didn't read earlier, he says, Do you suppose, O. Um, uh, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. It's one thing to have the law and to know the law. It's a different thing to actually obey the law. And that is where it convicts us of sin. Now the conscience did its work. The oldest knew first that they were not without sin and they left. And then the younger ones too. Until none of those scribes and Pharisees were left. So Jesus then has some words to the woman. He gets back up from riding on the dirt and looks around. Where did everyone go? Has no one condemned you? She says, no one, Lord. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. He did not condemn her, primarily because he did not come to condemn the world. He did testify its deeds were evil. He would be the judge on the final day, but he came not to condemn the world, but to save it. Those who did not believe him were already condemned. His words of grace would further condemn them if they did not believe in him. Jesus was the one without sin. And so he will judge the world on the last day. But his mission and his message was one of salvation. And the one who comes to the light from the darkness, the one who believes in Jesus, does not come into judgment and shall never be condemned will not be condemned by Jesus, but rather forgiven, justified, declared righteous. Jesus does not condemn the woman, and he calls the woman to repentance. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Break off this habit. Don't continue in this way. Turn from this sin. Go and sin no more. She was to receive this gift of forgiveness by turning from her sins. If she spurred repentance, if she... Uh, rejected repentance, she would also reject the gift of forgiveness. But if she repented and believed in Christ, she would have reason to rejoice in those words. She would have reason to take assurance in them. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus did not approve of her sin, but he came as one who was a savior for sinners. So in conclusion, we can think our, a, a few questions. Are you without sin? Is anyone here without sin? It's the same John who in his epistle says, we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us. Uh, We are 
wrong if we say that we have no sin. We do have sin. What does that sin deserve? That sin deserves condemnation. It deserves uh, eternal death. Who came to save us from sin and judgment? Who came to be the savior of the world whose deeds were evil? It is Jesus, God the Son, the sinless one, who came to die for us. And so how would he have us to receive this gift? By believing in him? By repentance, this grief and hatred of sin so that we turn from it uh, and turn to God, endeavoring after new obedience, that we live a new life now where we put to death the deeds of the flesh. We put to death our sin and more and more live unto righteousness. This is how we follow the Lord whom we believe in. And this is what Jesus calls us to, to go now and to sin no more. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ, your grace and love in sending him for our sake, that we have sins that are condemned by your law. We have broken it in many ways. And as vile as these sins are, we have come to you to be cleansed in that blood Jesus Christ, that in believing on him, that we might have life, that we would not come into judgment, but rather be received as righteous. We pray that you would bring sinners to repentance, that you would use the conscience, use the law, so that we might not be self-righteous before you, confident falsely, but rather to be convicted of sin and to turn to you and to turn away from sin to take hold of this salvation and to give thanks for it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.